What is the sympathetic strike? It is the recognition by the working class of their essential unity. The manifestation in our daily industrial relations that our brother's fight is our fight. Our sister's troubles are our troubles. That we are all members of one another. In practical operation, it means that when anybody of workers are in conflict with their employer, that all other workers should cooperate with them in attempting to bring that particular employer to reason by refusing to handle his goods. That, in fact, every employer who does not consent to treat his work people upon a civilised basis should be treated as an enemy of civilization and placed and kept outside of the amenities and facilities offered by civilised communities. Welcome to Labour Days, a podcast about trade union issues and labour history. This is episode 30. Welcome, welcome back to Labour Days, the long-awaited James Connolly episode with uh, our own producer Liam McNulty, um, who we'll be talking to very shortly about his book about uh, the great Irish socialist James Connolly. Um, And we've also got Ellie Clark back on the Hi. pod. I'm back. So we're expecting the listenership to double or triple for this one. No pressure, Ellie. <laughs> yeah, fan fan favourite. And um, we've got some signed copies of uh, the Washington Post that we mentioned in. It was the Washington Post, wasn't it? Yes, it was the Washington yeah, Post. Yeah. All right. <laughs> we've got so some signed awful. copies of that with Ellie in that people can have we're going to be giving those away um did you how how did you get into the washington did they just ring you up yeah so basically like where i work (laughs) so basically where i i think there's a couple of things that happened basically where i work you uh were politically restricted uh so great that i'm doing this podcast not all gonna get fired for this where uh should we give you a pseudonym (laughs) <laughs> I think it's a bit late for that, lads. <laughs> so I think Lee Clark. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm politically restricted, so only reps are allowed to talk to the press. So when I was running the picket line, I was doing all the press interviews. And then from there, the press officer of my union was like, wait a minute, she's a woman and she knows how to string a sentence together. And I think just ended up basically, although I think the listeners would, of this podcast will have a different idea about that. But um, basically just ended up putting me forward for any press related activities to do with the strikes. And the Washington Post just got in touch with the union press office, did they? Yeah. And they were like, yeah, I remember having a conversation with the press office and being like, I do not want to do this. I'll talk about my dispute, but I'm not talking about my personal life. And uh, the press officer just being like, but that's the only way Americans can deal with news. <laughs> I think it was uh, It's also, uh, you know, if you'll allow us, a bit of a missed opportunity to plug the show. Whole, I know uh, I should have. What was I thinking? Yeah, American we could have got into uh, legacy media. Exactly. All that whining on about, you know, uh, the collapse of living standards and not knowing if I'm going to be able to heat my home. I should have stopped all of that and just plugged the show. Exactly. Indeed. And speaking of our um, international reach, appropriately given the topic of uh, our discussion today, uh, Liam is joining us from Ireland. Liam, good to have you back with us. How are you? 
I'm good, thank you, and good to be good to be back. Should have also plugged my book, really. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have we'll I'm have ample ample opportunity to do that now, <laughs> so uh, we can we can make up for lost. Uh, you know, we have a bigger we have a bigger reach from the Washington Post, I think. Yeah, agreed. And yeah, this come on, this whole episode is a podcast length plug for the book, so I'm sure sales are going to skyrocket. So. Listen, let's waste no more time and uh, dive into today's topic. As Ed's mentioned, um, Labor Day's crew member and uh, sometime producer Liam um, has written a new book about uh, James Connolly, and that's what we're going to talk about. So maybe just to set this up, um, I think probably for most listeners, if they have some awareness of who Connolly was... um, well, maybe not our listeners, because our listeners are sort of fairly niche and have the same kind of esoteric interests as uh, as us. But if we imagine a sort of broader listenership, uh, Connolly, I, I think in the popular imagination, very much associated with um, Irish national liberation struggle. We're going to be talking about Connolly as a, as a kind of workplace organiser and kind of theorist of trade union organisation. Um, so just to kick us off, Liam, do you want to maybe... Tell us a little bit about Connolly's background as a trade unionist and, and his background in the labour movement and the industrial organisation specifically. Yeah, absolutely, Daniel. So Connolly was he was a Irish uh, socialist and Republican revolutionary, and he was born in Edinburgh in 1868. He moves to Dublin in 1896. He was active as a socialist agitator. Uh, around the turn of the century, uh, partly for economic reasons, he he migrates to the United States in 1903, becomes involved in the the socialist and syndicalist movements in the USA. By 1910, he's back in Ireland. This is the period of the the Home Rule crisis uh, and the Great Unrest, which we've talked about in the podcast. So Connolly is involved in that. He's a founder of the Irish Labour Party. And he's also becomes the general secretary of the Irish Transport and General Workers Union, which is founded by Jim Larkin. He also sets up a kind of trade union militia in this period called the Irish Citizens Army. And in 1916, during the First World War, he marches with the Irish Citizens Army and the Irish volunteers to uh, go out in what becomes known as the Easter Uprising of uh, Easter 1916. And Connolly was executed for his part in the uprising. And that's the part that a lot of people maybe know about Connolly. But as we will be discussing in this podcast, he was also a very important trade union organiser and a theorist of revolutionary industrial trade unionism. So, yeah, I mean, look, as, as you've mentioned there, I think probably to the extent that Connolly is... Um, known in the in in the popular imagination it is very much for his association with the irish national liberation struggle but what your book is substantially about it seems to me anyway is is trying to relocate him in the 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 international labor movement and socialist movement of his time and in the debates that were happening there uh, a, a number of which were about trade union strategy so could you maybe tell us a bit about Connolly's background as a workplace organizer and as a kind of theorist of, of trade union strategy. 
from the earliest surviving letters that we have from Connolly to his fiance and later wife, Lily Reynolds, Connolly discusses being involved in a strike, and that's in Dundee, and I think it's about 1888. And I think, you know, partly that's a given in light of his class background. He, he grew up in the sort of Irish ghetto of um, Edinburgh in the, he's born in 1868, and was from a very uh, poor uh, sort of immigrant background. And I think, interestingly, given the sort of nature of the Victorian socialist movement, his, his labour movement activities, he didn't necessarily do much for socialist politics. So in 1889, uh, Connolly joins the Socialist League, which listeners might associate with William Morris. There was very much an emphasis on socialist propaganda. And I think it's fair to say that the relationship between socialist politics and trade unionism, it was not clear cut. You know, it was contested. Uh, it, it, it hadn't really emerged with any clarity in, in that movement. Then Connolly's first party of his own was the Irish Socialist Republican Party, founded in Dublin in 1896. And Connolly was on Dublin Trades Council in this period, but it was very much as a socialist agitator rather than as a trade unionist that he made his mark in turn of the century Dublin. And I think to understand that, you have to understand that trade unionism in Ireland in this early period was confined largely to craft unions. So the, the labour historian Emmett O'Connor, he, he, he talks about the constellation of butchers, bakers and candlestick makers that makes up the membership of the Irish Trade Union Congress. Liam, you mentioned earlier that Connolly moved to the United States at one point. So can you kind of elaborate a bit more on maybe the effect that that had on his political organising? Yeah, thanks, Ellie. So I think his move to the States, I would argue, was absolutely crucial. So when he went to America, he did so as the sort of leader of quite a small socialist propaganda organisation. And he comes back from the States with significant sort of mass organising experience. So he moves to the US in 1903. He'd been there once before the year previously on a, a lecture tour uh, for Daniel de Leon's Socialist Labour Party. Uh, that's uh, quite an important organisation from Connolly. It's where he sort of encounters ideas uh, of industrial unionism. And from 1905 onwards, with the SLP as a whole, Connolly becomes involved in the industrial workers of the world, the kind of radical uh, revolutionary industrialist uh, trade union. And I think, though, the, the Dublin lockout, which we'll come on to discuss, that is certainly the pinnacle of Connolly's experience as a trade union leader. A lot of his most formative years in terms of his approach to trade unionism come from his time as an organiser in New York for the IWW. And you can read his kind of experiences in doing that. He recounts them in a, a column for the Industrial Union Bulletin, which was a kind of paper of the IWW. And I think what was quite key from that is Connolly learns the, the weakness of craft unionism. So its capacity to set workers up against each other and disorganize the working class as a whole. And he draws from that really that industrial unionism is the idea that all workers in one industry should be in the same union. It's not just a better form of trade unionism, but it can also generate 
forms of solidarity that can kind of change working class consciousness and that, that's much more conducive to the kind of socialist politics that he was interested in. And I think you know, Connolly's politics undergo many shifts and twists and turns, but industrial unionism becomes, I think, a bedrock for his vision of the future form of workers' rule. Uh, and it becomes more or less a constant theme up until his death. So we find, for, exa- for example, in The Reconquest of Ireland, Connolly's final book, in 1915, he's writing about industrial unionism. Um, yeah. So, so uh, there's a there's a lot to draw out of this, and I think a theme it will be interesting to come back to is um, the idea that's quite central to a lot of Connolly's trade union theory of. I mean, he doesn't use this term directly, but but the kind of prefigurative quality of um, workplace organisation, but. What, what I just wanted to chip in with is to ask Liam or, or, or maybe Ed as well, who's our other resident historian, just if you might just develop some of these terms for listeners. Although we've done an episode on industrial unionism, so any long, long time listener to Labour Days might have some sense of this. Um, could, could, could you just say a little bit, um, maybe let me throw this to Ed, um, what, what is industrial unionism? Liam's mentioned a, a, a little bit about its basics there. Could you say a bit more about it? And then maybe after that, to throw back to Liam, could you talk a bit more about what the IWW was like as an organisation in this time? Because some of our listeners, you know, an organisation called the IWW still exists. It does trace a direct kind of organisational genealogical link to the, to the original IWW, but we're talking about some quite different things. Yeah, so the basic idea is, as Liam uh, says is is the idea that uh, everyone who works in an industry should be in the same union organization as opposed to the common situation at the time and in many cases still now where you have multiple uh, trade unions or craft unions uh, that different people in an industry who are doing slightly different jobs to each other might all be members of uh, different organizations and um you know there was in the at, at that time a kind of um there were different approaches to industrial unionism some people kind of advocated uh, the amalgamation of kind of smaller craft unions into larger industrial unions um some people advocated uh the foundation of kind of separate um sort of revolutionary industrial unions outside of uh, the pre-existing trade unions, which is, which is essentially sort of, well, uh, in in short, sort of how the IWW came about. Although it did rely on kind of splits from existing unions as well, didn't it? Uh, I think the largest component of the early IWW was the Western Federation of Miners. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so th- there was there was that experience really brutal sort of repression of the kind of the mining companies and uh, a really kind of visceral form of class struggle. And I think that certainly informed, you know, the opening preamble of the IWW, the working class and the employing class have nothing in common. So it's it's setting itself up against the sort of dominant uh, idea of the unions and the employers sort of mediating together, which you've kind of found with Samuel Gompers, who was the sort of leader of the American Federation of Labour, 
um, the AFL, I think also unlike the AFL, the IWW, it, it organised uh, beyond the kind of beyond white workers. Um, so the AFL was you know, quite exclusivist and it also set itself up as a revolutionary trade union. So you know, not only were you joining a union that would further sort of your, your, your pay and your conditions, but explicitly the IWW talked about building up within capitalism, the kind of shell of the, the future society. So, it, you know, it was a, a revolutionary trade union as well as kind of a trade union that kind of, uh, bargains. Um, and then just on bargaining, uh, the IWW had a principle of not entering into contracts with employers. I think it, you know, it, it, it saw its role as just kind of organising workers to fight. And I think that, you know, that appealed to sort of, you know, itinerant workers, seasonal workers, it, uh, it used sort of mass solidarity and kind of later on sort of sabotage and you know, radical uh, tactics to, to win against the employer, um, but perhaps mitigated it against it sort of setting up a kind of stable organisation for the long term. But that's something that maybe goes slightly beyond Connolly's experience in Edward Green. So Connolly was obviously a guy who had quite a sophisticated understanding of oppression. And I know that, you know, the IWW quite famously are an organisation who have, um, you know, made attempts to, to organise black workers. So could you maybe talk a little bit about um, how Connolly related to the the question of kind of like black oppression in America, which I guess would be one of the most pertinent questions of the time yeah so obviously it is the, one of the most pertinent questions of the time but what I find strange or maybe not so strange but certainly disappointing is kind of the, the absence of uh, you know, proper thinking about this uh, in the pre-World War I American labour movement so it's very very difficult to find any explicit references to black workers in Connolly's writings that I've seen in this period in newspapers such as the Harp. So it's certainly mentioning the struggle of workers who, knowing the kind of industries that they're involved in, are quite clearly black workers, but it doesn't explicitly draw that out. Um, I think just for some context, uh, Eugene V. Debs is um, kind of key revolutionary socialist figure of this period. And you know, he's against kind of segregated uh, trade union local branches. Uh, he's an opponent of racism, um, but he didn't think that you had to make any kind of specific programmatic demands um, for black workers. And it was kind of, it was fine to kind of just call kind of in general for the, the kind of unity of black and white. And I think, you know, arguably Connolly fits into that sort of slightly colorblind um perspective which was hegemonic even it was hegemonic on the left of the labor movement you can find you know out and out racism kind of in the more moderate or conservative bits of the american labor movement and i think that doesn't really change up until uh after world war one and the kind of advent of the, the communist party yeah because there is that really uh striking quote isn't there about um 
oh, I'm going to garble this now, but about uh, children working in cotton fields in Texas and you kind of just have to guess that they're black. Nobody ever says they're black, but it's like, that's that's clearly what you're talking about. So, yeah, um, yeah, I find find that um, sort of very interesting that the socialist movement felt the need to to be colorblind. Could you maybe explain a little bit more, Liam, about... um, this idea of being a kind of revolution reunion and what that kind of meant in the practical sense, because, um, you know, I think Connolly was very against the idea of basically setting up a kind of Labour Party style, like bourgeois workers party for America, um, even though that was kind of, I guess, an idea that was that was in the the atmosphere at the time. Um, so what does what does it mean to be in a revolution reunion? What does it mean to like sow those seeds inside a capitalist society? Uh, I think it's the AWW it meant um, you know, I published uh, newspapers, so Industrial Union Bulletin and Solidarity were two of the AWW papers, and that made sort of propaganda against capitalism, and it sort of pushed the idea of the one big union as the as a kind of solution to uh, capitalism as a kind of system generating crisis and generating um, oppression. So I think it was quite clear, you know, when you signed up, you weren't just signing up um, for services or health insurance. You were fighting up to fight your employer, but also to join a kind of general movement against capitalism. And I think, you know, we, we can debate this. Um, it, a, a trade union to be successful requires sort of organising a, a broad mass of workers uh, to sustain kind of uh, solidarity against an employer. Uh, arguably, outside of some of the target um Workforces that the AWW was 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 looking at uh, a revolutionary union is perhaps a bit of a tough sell outside of in kind of normal conditions. Um, but of course, the AWW was kind of organising in places where conditions perhaps weren't normal, where there was maybe no prior union organisation, or uh, where any more moderate form of trade unionism didn't really have a grip. Am I right in thinking that when he was in? New York, New Jersey, that Connolly was organising in kind of distribution transport industries, or was he sort of doing a bit of everything? Uh, I think mostly kind of among the, among the waterfront. So can you maybe sort of summarise or or um, sort of extend the, the points you, you've already gestured towards in terms of the theoretical conclusions that that Connolly draws or, or or formulates from this experience, because I, th- I think it's worth saying as well that th- you know th- this this tradition, um, the tradition of you know revolutionary industrial unionism, is a uh, really important current in the labour movement and the left in America and Europe and and across the world at at this time that um, Connolly is kind of part of and contributing to the. Um, theoretical development of and there are a few different approaches within that current for example about whether you know you just need the revolutionary union and that's a sufficient instrument in and of itself whether you also need a 
revolutionary political party and revolutionary industrial unions, what the relationship between these two bodies is. And Connolly throughout his life is also involved in political organisations. He's also involved in building political parties. So could you just kind of summarise what the theoretical organisational conclusions are that, that he comes out of this experience with about those questions, the, the, the relationship of the, the relationship of unions to political organisation and um, maybe some of the longer range stuff about um, the extent to which a, a, a union can be a instrument for class combat against capitalism, but also potentially the, uh, the kind of infrastructure of the future worker state. Yeah, so I think I mentioned that Connolly had been involved in kind of propaganda organisations like the Socialist League and the Irish Socialist Republican Party. Um, it also contested elections for the Irish Socialist Republican Party. And yeah, he joins the SLP in America. So there was a current in the IWW that was more explicitly anarcho-syndicalist and against what it would describe as politics. And Connolly was never uh, an sort of apolitical syndicalist in that sense. So he did always see a role for the political party. When he becomes an industrial unionist, the, industri the revolutionary industrial union becomes the primary instrument of struggle and also the primary sort of uh, instrument of socialist construction. So he, he, he draws an analogy with the way that the, the bourgeoisie built up its economic and social power within feudalism. And he sees the growth of the industrial union as kind of analogous to that. You know, workers are kind of conquering more and more workplaces and they're building up the, the scaffolding for the, the future workers' republic. But he also sees a role for political organisation. Uh, he does relegate it largely to making propaganda and setting, you know, standing for elections. So I think by the time he gets back to Ireland, he's got this kind of conclusion that you've got the industrial union at the centre of things. You've also got a, a sort of socialist political party to make the arguments for socialism and make socialist propaganda. And then you've got a sort of electoral arm uh, which in Ireland came uh, the, the, the Labour Party, the Irish Labour Party and Trade Union Congress. So he, he kind of has a model of there being kind of three component parts, industrial union at the sort of base, then socialist propaganda, and then working class political representation through sort of Labour type party. And, but he, he definitely sees the industrial union as the kind of central one. So after his time in America, Liam, uh, you mentioned that Connolly returns to Ireland and becomes an organiser for the ITGWU, the Irish Transport and General Workers Union. Um, tell us a bit about that organisation and uh, the extent to which it, uh, it it kind of represented this sort of revolutionary industrial union that um, Connolly had, 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 had theorised. Sure. Um, so I think the Irish Transport and General Workers Union, there's a bit of an ad hoc sort of character to it. Um, it, it, it was in essence, it was an Irish split from the National Union of Dock Labourers. And that was uh, led by James Sexton. And it had roots in Glasgow, but it was also very closely linked to Liverpool, where, where Jim Larkin, who founded the 
Irish Transport Union was originally a member. Do you, do you want to do you want to just give us a sentence on on Larkin for anyone who, who doesn't know? He's obviously an important figure in this history. So Larkin was Liverpool Liverpool-born socialist who becomes uh, leader of very militant class struggle in Ireland, uh, specifically uh, the 1907 Dockers and Carter strike in, in Belfast, and then also the uh, Dublin lockout of 1913-1914. So you know, a very crucial figure in the growth of the Irish labour movement. He was active as a, as a communist uh, politician and organiser after that in the post-war period. I think it's really interesting um, aspect of this sort of era that um, a lot of these guys like like they were like transnational figures, right? And that's that's like a that is like a theme in your book about Connolly. And I think it's particularly worth emphasising in 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 the context where these days there's a certain or there are certain trends in society at large and also in the labour movement that kind of hark back to uh, a supposed time when sort of working class communities were like static and rooted and all the rest of it, that like actually like loads of pioneers of the labour movement, like they moved around like all the fucking time and they lived in loads of different countries. You know, Tom Mann was the same, went to Australia, came back, you know. Some of that was kind of a function of the British Empire, some of it was a function of the Irish migration to North America and all, all sorts of other sort of reasons for it. But I think it's worth emphasising that like these were like transnational activists, you know. I, I think so, something else that's important about that and that comes through very strongly in Liam's book is the profoundly in, both international and internationalist character of the movement that Connolly and his contemporaries, you know, saw themselves as part of an international movement, and uh, you know, act they, the the the, the theorising that they're doing is a contribution to de- debates that are, that are kind of going on in that movement. And it's a bit ironic, I think, in some ways that the the this, despite you know international travel and global telecommunications, the contemporary labour movement and left often weirdly feels kind of less connected and more parochial and less engaged in sort of direct international debates and having meaningfully democratic international structures um, than the left and labour movement of, of Connolly's time. Do you think that's fair, Liam? I think that's very true. And just the kind of, you mentioned the kind of revolutionary industrial unionists and syndicalist ideas were kind of in the air in this period. And you know, one way in which they were in the air was you were getting a profusion of, of, of pamphlets and, and debates in the press, the, the revolutionary and labour movement press about this. So Ed mentioned Tom Mann. He wrote a book, a pamphlet called The Way to Win. And he mentions in his autobiography that just before it came out, he received James Connolly's Socialism Made Easy uh, in the post. I think Connolly sent him a copy of it. And he said, you know, this encapsulates kind of what I was trying to say um, in, a, in a very vivid way and you know that becomes Connolly's most popular work while he was still alive um, socialism made easy because it was a very vivid encapsulation of that kind of revolutionary industrialist idea it was informed by kind of Connolly's 
experience of the class struggle. So yeah, these these ideas were circulating, uh, people were circulating, and it, yeah, it was a it was it was a, a transnational debate, and also the the argument about politics in the AWW, you know, that was replicated in Britain too. Uh, I think you had the British advocates of industrial unionism. Uh, they set up the Industrial Workers of Great Britain, and all those all those debates were, were being followed on both sides of the Atlantic quite anxiously. Okay, so t- take us back to to Ireland and the um, work of the ITGWU. Um, so, what kind of you know where is it organising? What kind of workers is it organising? What's its uh, organisational and sort of strategic culture like? Yeah, so I mentioned it was a split from kind of previous Dock Labourers Union and as such its organisational base initially was in port towns, so Belfast, Dublin, Bray, Waterford, Cork. The the old union, the NUDL, it, it retains a bit of a base in Derry. So, you know, because of that sort of industrial profile, its members were general dock labourers, carters, some transport workers, so famously the Dublin United Tramways workers joined the transport union. And I think this is quite ref- the industrial structure of Ireland at that time as well, you know, if you can call it sort of industrial structure. So Dublin had been the sort of second city of the British Empire, but it had, it had fallen. Um, its largest industries were uh, food and drinks, Guinness, Jacob's Biscuit Factory, but it had a substantial number of workers just sort of moving things around, um, you know, carrying things, uh, carting things. And Connolly actually argues that it's this kind of preponderance of general labourers in Dublin, the, the interchangeable roles, it lends itself particularly well to the sympathetic strike compared to, say, more developed English cities with more rigid divisions between skilled crafts in uh, defined industries. So, you know, that's kind of the, you know, that's kind of the AW, sorry, that's kind of the, the, the transport union structurally it, Despite the sort of syndicalist trappings that it might have had, it was, it was a general union for labourers and it had a transport bias given the kind of places that it organised and the kind of nature of Ireland's economy. Um, it was also organised in largely geographic branches, which is maybe not the way you'd expect sort of industrial union to organise. But given the structure of the labour market in Ireland at the time, Maybe difficult to see it being organised differently. I think I think it you know it signed it signed contracts, um, whereas the IWW famously refused, and it, it, indeed the lockout was sparked by a dispute over a new contract in in Dublin where workers had to sign away their right to join the transport union. So the Dublin lockout, obviously, at least in Irish history, very like significant and well known event, and that was a. That was a months long sort of confrontation between the uh, Irish Transport and General and uh, employers in Dublin. Um, that obviously Connolly and Larkin were uh, were heavily involved in. So, um, can you talk a bit, Liam, about the uh, Irish Transport and General and the uh, and the lockout in Dublin? Sure. So, um, after it's founded, the Transport Union it spreads very rapidly, and it it, it gathers the sort of moniker. Um, Larkinism as a, a sort of style of trade unionism. So 
it combines very aggressive class struggle tactics and sympathetic strike. Um, also a sort of labor or socialist republicanism, uh, an elevated sense of sort of solidarity as, a, as, a, as, a, as an ethic and a, a, set, a sense of kind of reciprocal uh, duty, a sense of bringing dignity and kind of hope to the working class and um, really raising working classes collective aspirations and all of this stuff, it, it really does worry the employer class in, in Ireland. And the lockout was was prompted by William Martin Murphy. He was a, a home ruler. He was one of Ireland's biggest capitalists. He owned the Imperial Hotel in Dublin, the tram company. Um, yeah, he was, he owned the Irish independent newspaper. So he, he, he tries to break the transport union so the lockout begins as a kind of defensive struggle um, by the transport union from the get-go. Um, the transport union has a number of tactics in the early days. So one, of course, is a sympathetic strike, and it seeks to apply that UK-wide. So the lockout has to be seen as part of the, the picture of the great unrest in uh, the UK, um, in, including Ireland, kind of at, at this time and as a whole. And... Also, the, you know, the struggle for the sympathetic strike, the demand for British workers not to handle goods from Dublin. It was a major issue of contention between radicals, syndicalists, those organised around the Daily Herald and the kind of more conservative uh, leadership of some of the unions and also the, the TUC. You know, they really did not want a sympathetic strike spreading through Britain. They, they organised food ships and they organised kind of monetary aid but they didn't want a spread action uh, on their patch. Uh, of course, it did in a kind of unofficial way in Liverpool and South Wales. Um, but you know, they, they they tried to keep a lid on it. And, yeah, and on on the railways, um, even even spread as far as Sheffield in a in a limited way on the on the railways. It was, it's worth it's worth stressing how kind of interlinked these industries were. I think because like you were. You alluded to like the great unrest across Britain from about 1910. There's all these sort of significant national and local strikes. Sort of first of all in first of all in coal and then in transport and on the railways and the you know the, the these guys are they're like they're working in like close proximity with each other, right? And they're they're sort of experimenting with similar forms of trade union organizing trade union organization and the the sympathetic strike becomes almost a kind of what once you've reached the point where you feel like it's possible to do it it becomes almost sort of common sense in this period of like why why wouldn't you do it because that seems to be the the way that you're going to win and the uh, the bulk of the TUC uh, leadership like you say, are, are like determined to kind of sit on that and, and for it not to spread. And uh, Larkin was very, uh, <laughs> Larkin himself was very uh, uh, dismissive and uh, didn't mince his words in uh, in his speeches attacking the TUC leadership. Yeah, absolutely. So Larkin gets imprisoned very early on in the strike. Um, so first of all, you have these kind of free Larkin uh, big big meetings. The, the biggest of which was in the Albert Hall, um, which brought together uh, Sylvia Pankhurst and George Bernard Shaw and you know all 
all sorts of sort of luminaries of the movement at the time. Um, but then, as you say, yeah, when Larkin gets out, he embarks on a campaign of mass meetings, which is really encouraging workers to take uh, action officially, if possible, unofficially, if not. Uh, you mentioned Sheffield, he addresses a big meeting there, and I think a, a report exists from JT Murphy um, of the, the workers' committees that you know, you've written a pamphlet on um, the future, future Communist Party leader. Um, and another, another plug there for uh, another Labour Day's literary uh, product. We've done an episode on that. Go back and check out our episode on the Sheffield Workers' Committee that Ed's written a, uh, a pamphlet about. It's all in the uh, it's all in the extended Labor Day's cinematic universe. All exactly, this stuff. exactly. Yeah, yeah. Carry we're, on, wait, yeah. we're waiting for the multiple movie deal. <laughs> yeah, so M- M- Murphy um, saw Larkin uh, speak, um, and yeah, just in keeping with the kind of transnational theme, there's a fantastic picture from this period of, in the Clarion Cafe in Manchester, and you've got Ben Tillett, you've got uh, Hughes there. You know, famously, the, the Dockers leader. Uh, you had big Bill Haywood of the RWWE. And you've got Larkin and Connolly sitting there. And yeah, you, you're just really bringing this transnational industrial unionist and syndicalist sort of movement together. You also get a letter from the, the CGT in France uh, and, a, and a donation of money to the, to the strike. So yeah, absolutely. Um yeah, just kind of moving the story on. So Larkin and Connolly, they're, they're pushed into this defensive struggles, but, so they really want to sort of tip the scales against the employer. And I've mentioned the, the pathetic strike they were trying to spread. I've mentioned the sort of mass meetings. They also use political tactics. So they, they, they target the Liberal Party, which was the government in by-elections, kind of target the Irish vote. And I think that that's kind of one of the things that helps Larkin get out of prison. The government loses two elections in November 1913. And they also set up a uh, the Irish Citizen Army. So the impetus comes from Captain Jack White, who had fought in the, the Boer War. Um, he becomes disillusioned with the kind of British Empire and becomes a sort of home ruler. Uh, then he, he kind of gets radicalised and... You know, he, he, he kind of proposes the idea, uh, Connolly kind of runs with it, uh, sets up a, a trade union defence force or militia. And it's also, of course, it's playing into this kind of second international idea of abolishing the standing army. Um, so I think the Social Democratic Federation wrote a kind of pamphlet on the, the, the kind of people's militia, the citizen army, so it's kind of playing into that sort of wider theme as well. Um, and yeah, common common currency at the time of uh, in in the movement that standing armies should be abolished. But you wouldn't get very far at GMB Congress these days with a motion like that, would you? <laughs> no, indeed. Um, and then, yeah, just sort of finally on the, on, on the 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 lockout. Um, you mentioned Ed at the TUC wanted to keep a little thing on things. Things come to a bit of a head when a, a motion of support for Dublin is voted down and a motion criticising Larkin for his attacks on the British trade union leadership is supported. And I think that kind of puts the writing on the wall, really. Um, 
And that's early December 1913, as things go in over Christmas to 1914, uh, workers begin to kind of return to work and the union focuses on sort of minimising reprisals. Um, Conley writes a series of very bitter articles praising the action of the kind of British working class, but also damning the, the lack of solidarity uh, from, from the TUC. Um, and he, you know, he, he develops a bit of a critique of the trade union bureaucracy, uh, which is also a theme in the kind of great unrest period. So he kind of mentions in uh, old wine in new bottles that, yes, you've got industrial unionism in the sense of amalgamating uh, unions together into larger, uh, more industrially organised unions, but it's been done in a bureaucratic way uh, with very conservative leaderships, and in, in some cases is increasing the distance between the rank and file of the union from the kind of uh, ruling structures of the union. Yeah, so yeah. You can the, also the NUR, I think, was the big one that was being criticised, which was which was founded in the year of the lockout which was an amalgamation of existing railway unions and uh, very pointedly and deliberately uh, described itself or named itself National Union of Railway Men and not National Union of Railway Workers. Uh, so it sort of shows the limits of that like bureaucratic industrial unionism that you had a, you had a very significant merger into what in many ways was an industrial union, but one of the first things it did was exclude women from membership straight away and there were several thousand women that worked on the railways at the time so uh, yeah 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 it's Thomas plays you know a bad a predictably bad role um, in the lockout uh, in opposing Larkin so yeah this this kind of critique of bureaucratic industrial unionism it kind of puts Connolly in the kind of same ballpark as people like Noah Ablett of their the unofficial reform committee in Kind of the South Wales uh, Federation of Miners. So he, his pamphlet, The Miners' Next Step, was a kind of similar um, critique of the bureaucracy from a sort of rank and filist, sort of syndicalist perspective. So again, you know, these ideas are kind of out there and economy should be kind of understood in that context. Um, so we, we mentioned at the beginning of the episode Liam that most people's kind of idea of Connolly if they have one is of him as a figure in the Irish national liberation struggle and that stems in large part from his participation in the Easter Rising and looked at in the context of everything we've just been talking about i.e you know Connolly as a very sophisticated theorist of workplace organization of revolutionary industrial unionism very much seeing workplace struggle and industrial organization as the trans you know both the kind of mechanism of transformative combat and the prefigurative infrastructure of a future society looked at in that context it seems quite odd that he would participate in a kind of nationalist insurrection um so this is obviously something you discuss at considerable length in, in your book and is and is the subject of much contestation in sort of debates over Connolly's legacy and the sort of where to situate him politically. But can you give us a bit of your view about, um, I guess, how Connolly reconciled his participation in the rising with his wider kind of revolutionary industrial unionist theory? 
Yes. So as you say that this is kind of the, the big question um, that a lot of people kind of ask of Connolly. And I'm not one of these people who kind of think that his concern with sort of Irish republicanism, Irish nationalism kind of springs up kind of overnight in, in 1916. I think, you know, if you do look at Connolly's earliest writings, um, Aaron's Hope is a good example. He, he, he is trying to sort of fuse the, the struggle for Irish national liberation with the fight for socialism. I, I think he's trying to sort of make the national struggle and the social struggle sort of flow together. So the working class becomes sort of the, the vanguard in the struggle for national liberation. And he, he kind of redefines national liberation as well as, uh, as the workers' republic. So his analysis is that Ireland in the sort of Elizabethan period um, and then kind of with, with Cromwell, uh, it, it's politically subjugated sort of earlier on and then becomes socially subjugated as well as the kind of ancient sort of Gaelic society is, is, is dismantled and replaced um, with uh, settler colonialism and, and, the, and the ascendancy. So he, he argues it's a, it's, a, it's a dual conquest. So there must be a kind of thoroughgoing reconquest, which uh, grants political freedom, but also social freedom, sort of um, uh, not a literal return to the old Gaelic kind of social order, but uh, a modern sort of worker state, which he sees as the kind of uh, contemporary embodiment of, of the principles that he sees in that society. Unfortunately, when, when events hit, so Ireland is dragged into the First World War, um, the transport union has been smashed by William Martin Murphy, uh, a lot of members for economic reasons kind of sign up uh, to the army. Connolly kind of, he sees the opportunity and the kind of need to uh, salvage uh, the cause of Irish self-determination um, and to embark on an uprising to end uh, Ireland's participation in the war and hopefully spark a kind of more general um, movement against the war. But I think the, the flowing together of the struggles um, it, it, it doesn't quite match up with kind of the strength of the working class in that war. Um, I think Connolly writes that you know, the cause of labour is the cause of Ireland, the cause of Ireland is the cause of labour, and that these two things can't be separated. I think largely in 1916 there was an element they were separated. Um, the, the people that he works with, they, the Republicans, you know, they, they weren't fighting um, for necessary the same thing as Connolly was. And he goes into that fight as the kind of the weaker party. So I think, you know, some of the concessions he, he makes over kind of program kind of flow from that the balance. So I think, you know, what, what you've got with Connolly in 1916 is he, he, he wants... Uh, a revolution that kind of lacks perhaps the, the the forces to carry it out the way that he wants to carry it out. He, he kind of reconciles these with a certain insurrectionist voluntarism, really. Um, and I think there's an element that he hopes that kind of sparks some sort of wider, more thoroughgoing struggle. So obviously, the Easter Rising is kind of defeated. Um, and Connolly is executed for his role in it. What happens to the ITGWU and the organisation that 
Connolly's helped to build up uh, after the defeat of the Rising? So, yeah, the Rising was defeated in the very short term, but also it kind of sparks a kind of widespread revulsion and taps into uh, a very latent sort of sense of um, Irish separate identity from, from Britain, which has been kind of welling up over the past couple of decades. And that really springs up as a mass movement in opposition to conscription in 1918 and leads to uh, a majority vote for Sinn Féin in the December 1918 election, sparking the War of Independence um, and Civil War. So the transport unions kind of rule in all of this is, I think, kind of slightly tragically uh, for Connolly, um, it it recovers from its um, defeat in the lockout and it, it, it plays a role in the uh, general strike against uh, conscription in April 1918. And it spreads, it makes significant inroads into agricultural labourers in kind of the middle of Ireland, as well as general labourers in the towns. And from a base of 100,000 members in 1916, um, membership affiliated to the Irish TUC grows to 225,000 in 1920, and over half of that is the Irish Transport Union. There's at least one branch of the union in pretty much every town in Ireland. And you have kind of many localised unions folding into the Transport Union, and it's seen as the mainstay of the sort of labour revival. Um, so, yeah, it becomes absolutely central to events during the War of Independence um, doesn't become politically central, it's kind of hegemonised by the Republicans. But uh, what's often forgotten is during that struggle, it's not just a narrow military struggle, but there's strikes, occupations, there's even Soviets sort of declared most famously in Limerick. And I think one of the tragedies is that there's not that political leadership there in the Irish labour movement that can fuse all of these struggles into a, a kind of coherent whole. And I think of Connolly had still been around, then it, it could have made an appreciable difference to the outcome, which is that la the Labour movement becomes very much a kind of subordinate force in post-independence Ireland. Okay, so Liam, thank you for all of that. I think, I, I certainly feel, I hope listeners feel that that's given us a really good insight into Connolly's life as a trade union organiser and his some of his kind of thought and theory about the role of trade unions and industrial struggle. Um, you know, we're a history podcast here at Labour Days, and I think something we've uh, commented on in previous episodes is our collective dissatisfaction at the way um, history is sometimes discussed on the left, that there's often a slightly crude and mechanical uh reflex whereby a historical subject is talked about and then somebody says and you know what what, what can we learn from this and uh, the contemporary applications are, are are often sometimes a bit unnuanced and maybe a bit um yeah as i say kind of crude and mechanical so um with that as a caveat and in the hope of avoiding that kind of crudeness can you kind well, of you are, you are a very crude and mechanical man, Daniel. I've always <laughs> thank you very much. But we should aspire. You know, I'm aspiring to rise above those um, those those elements of my of my character. So I wanted to maybe draw things to a conclusion by giving Liam an opportunity to kind of bring us up to date and 
share your thoughts on um, what we can learn from Connolly in terms of our contemporary trade union activity. Um, in our last episode, me and Ed talked about the current strike wave. Um, the general secretary of my union, Mick Lynch, uh, has said in some of his various media interviews that James Connolly is his, uh, his, his kind of hero. So, you know, the, go- the ghost of Connolly has, 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 uh, has haunted the, uh, the, the, the current strike wave, at least to that extent. So can you give your thoughts on um, uh, what, what we can, you know, what, what, if anything, we can put into practice in our, in, in our own trade union activity and organising um, from, uh, uh, from, from Connolly's approaches? I think you know all all proportions guarded and understanding that Connolly was operating in a different uh, set of circumstances to the ones that we find ourselves in. I think that industrial unionism is still a very valid and indeed uh, urgent requirement for the British Labour movement. So I think we've seen, uh, as discussed in last week's podcast about uh, current strike wave all manner of uh, divisions in the working class in the current strike wave. So, you know, in the the NHS, you know, we've got got British Medical Association, you've got Unison, you've got uh, um, Unite, you've got, you know, know, different trade unions kind of creating a very complex and divided picture um, at workplace level. Uh, In the education sector, you've got the you know, the National Education Union aspiring to sort of be a, a more general sort of education union for uh, support staff and teachers, but being blocked by uh, the GMB and some of the other unions um, who don't want uh, the NEU kind of organising on their on their turf or pinching their members as, as they would see it. So I think you know, that this industrial union idea that all workers in a given industry should be organised together to kind of maximise uh, collective action and solidarity is is very important. Also, Connolly's critique of the trade union bureaucracy, I think, seeing that uh, being vindicated. So, on, in my union, PCS, you've got uh, ostensible socialists in the leadership who are trying to settle for the the lowest of all public sector um, pay offers and are trying to sell it to the members of the very misleading sort of uh, electronic referendum. So, you know, some of the sharp practice that we saw in rigging the uh, TUC Congress of December 1913 against Larkin, um, you know, some of our contemporary leaders are learning more from that than they are from the examples of James Connolly. And then just very finally, I think, you know, Connolly had a, he had a really instinctive class-based hatred of capitalism and of, of all oppression. And you know, some of that spirit, I think, is really important. And you know, during the lockout, he said at one point, uh, to hell with contracts. And I'm, I'm not advocating a kind of principled opposition to all kind of contractual uh, agreements with the bosses, which I think is, is kind of that utopian given the kind of current state of the labor movement but taking that spirit of uh you know agreements and indeed the law is kind of a secondary thing and kind of primary thing as the kind of the action and the class struggle i think we can apply that kind of spirit to for example the anti-trade union legislation which is inhibiting 
workers and fighting back uh, today. So I think, you know, Connolly's healthy disdain for sort of uh, legalism and his kind of um, priority that he places on, on, on the class struggle and on organising workers, I think is something that is, is very contemporary and very needed. Thanks for that, Liam. Really, really interesting insight into Connolly's life and ideas. The book is James Connolly, Socialist, Nationalist and Internationalist by Liam McNulty. Uh, you can get it in uh, the usual places that books can be found. Uh, we'll put links uh, in the episode description. Um, really, we just were able only to really scratch the surface. There's there's tons more stuff in the book, not just about Connolly as a, as a trade unionist, but also his... Uh, his republicanism, his uh, Irish nationalism, and and his involvement with the international socialist movement as well. So there's there's absolutely tons more stuff that we uh, that we just don't have time to talk about on the pod. Uh, so really, would encourage people to uh, to uh, purchase the book, uh, give it a read, talk about it with your workmates, um, maybe send a copy to Mick Lynch, Liam, if he's a big fan of Connolly, um, and yeah. Uh, thanks again to liam and it's nice to have uh it's nice to have producer liam on the other side of the mic so thanks to all of you for listening um this is uh our second episode in a month after a two and a half year three year however long it was very lengthy hiatus so hopefully we're going to be keeping up this pace um with more episodes um coming soon uh, so until uh the next time uh, we're with you and you're with us. Um, thanks for listening and solidarity for all your ongoing struggles. You've been listening to Labour Days, a podcast about trade union issues and labour history. Labour Days is presented by Ed Mustill, Ellie Clark, Daniel Randall and Liam McNulty and is produced sometimes by Liam McNulty and sometimes by Ed Mustill. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and please follow us on social media. We're at Labour underscore days on Twitter.